Hey y'all, I'm Sammy, your host of the You Were Made For More podcast. John 10.10 is a promise that Jesus came down to earth so that we would have life and have it abundantly. My prayer is that this podcast and all of the content that we put out would remind every student that they were made for more simply because of who they were created to be. My own walk with the Lord and my relationships with the teenagers that I disciple have shown me that once we understand whose we are, the game changes. Or in other words, transformation happens. Our identity changes everything. We recognize that it takes investment and partnership between the church and parents to raise teens who know and believe who they are in Jesus. And we're here to help. So buckle up as we take this journey and take a look at what God has to say about friendships, relationships, sexuality, dating, and all the things in between. Hey guys, welcome to the You Were Made For More podcast. Today, we are going to have the opportunity to hear a conversation that I had with Frederica Matthews Green. Frederica was originally a feminist by culture standards, but later she had a profound conversion to Christianity and with time to the pro-life movement. She's knowledgeable, powerful, and has really experienced both sides of the coin when it comes to this debate. And even better is she's willing to speak publicly about it. She has a ton of wisdom and I loved my conversation with her. So let's dive in so you guys can hear more. Frederica, welcome to the You Were Made For More podcast. I'm so pumped to have you here with us today and to have this conversation about feminism and sexuality and the role of women um, in our society today. So If you would do me a favor and kind of intro yourself, give us a SparkNotes version of who you are, and we'll go off of that. Hello, Sammy. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And uh, yes, I have had an interesting life. In my college years, I was very anti-Christian, and I had a dramatic conversion to Christ. And I was in favor of abortion, very supportive of abortion, and I had a conversion about that too. And I've been a pro-life activist for 30 years now, I guess. So I had those two conversions. And since that time, I've had a third conversion. My husband and my whole family, we became Eastern Orthodox. My husband is an Orthodox priest, recently retired. We're now living in Northeast Tennessee, where one of our sons is also an Orthodox priest. My website is frederica.com, just like my name, frederica.com. But I write more often on my Facebook page, so you can look me up there as well, Frederica Matthews Green. Awesome. Well, now that we have a little bit of background on on who you are, where you come from, I want to dive into talking about a really sort of controversial topic in today's society. But I think you offer a lot of wisdom to this topic and you speak with a lot of grace when it comes to what we as Christians can do. Um 
when it comes to feminism and society and kind of the world that we're living in today. But before we jump into that, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with Jesus and when um, that really became a real life-changing thing for you? I, I do have an unusual faith journey um, in that in my teens, I rejected Christianity and actually became very hostile to Christian faith and, you know, would try to argue with, with friends who were Christians and try to talk them out of their faith. And I was in a church hitchhiking around Europe. I was in a church in Dublin and looking at a statue of Christ, just looking at it like it was a statue. And I felt inside that the Lord was speaking to me. And he said, I am your life. I am your life. Um, it's, he said more than that. I've written about it different places. But um, that, that was enough to knock me upside the head, as they say. And um, it, was, it was very confusing. I, I wasn't happy about it at first. I didn't think being a Christian was cool. Um, and my theology was still all scrambled. I still was thinking, well, I'll just, instead of following Krishna, I'll follow Jesus. But it really doesn't matter. Um, so it took me a little while. And uh, the goodness of Christian friends who talked to me and explained things and helped me understand. So that was 47 years ago, back in the early 70s. And the Lord has just been so good to me. It's, it's been such a blessing. It's hard for me to summarize how, how my faith journey has gone because it keeps getting better and better. And my experience in prayer, I keep getting closer and closer to him. And I, I can say now I really feel like the Lord is with me always. I always sense his presence with me. And um, for those who think that sounds like something they would like, I'll rec recommend my book, The Jesus Prayer, as a very early, early Christian, Egyptian, and, and the, the Holy Land, men and women who developed a prayer that would enable them to just keep Jesus in their mind constantly. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And they would just try to keep repeating that instead of getting distracted by unimportant thoughts. So, um, yes, I spent a little bit too much time on that question, but um, it's so dear to my heart. I really did want to say something about it. That's awesome. I definitely will link to that book in our show notes so our listeners can check that out. Um, I want to kind of ask you off of that, how did you become involved in the pro-life movement? Well, I had a, I had a conversion on this topic as well. Um, in those college years, I was very much in favor of, of abortion. But, you know, this is the 70s when there wasn't a lot known and there weren't sonograms. And I believed it was just, as we said, a glob of tissue. And so I thought it was absurd to be sentimental over this glob of tissue. And I even went uh, before Roe v. Wade. I went with a friend up to New York City, which was the closest place she could get an abortion, and came with her back down again. So I was committed to that cause. Um, and then I read an article in Esquire magazine, of all places, titled What I Saw at the Abortion. This is January 1976 issue of Esquire magazine, short essay. And the, the writer, a doctor, um, just wanted to observe an abortion 
he saw the woman lying back on the table, 19 weeks pregnant, which is very light compared to men, most abortions. And uh, he saw his friend, the doctor, in- inject her pregnant abdomen with a syringe and dispense prostaglandin solution into her womb. And he said after that he saw the needle begin to shake back and forth. And he couldn't believe he was the only person in the room not noticing this. As the fetus, recognizing that its space had been invaded, that perhaps it was even pierced by this needle, um, began to fight for its life. And when I read this essay, it really shook me up because I thought, this is violence. I was like an anti-violence person. I was anti-war, opposed to the death penalty. I was vegetarian. <laughs> it was just all, in all these areas, I was like consistent nonviolence. And it had never occurred to me how violent abortion is. So that was a big change for me. That's how I became moved over to the pro-life cause. I became involved in the cause, became active through an organization called Feminists for Life. That was in the early, early 90s. I discovered Feminists for Life, and I became uh, their newsletter editor. It was a very small magazine then, very small organization. And um, I was the first person that they'd ever had on the board that lived close to a major media center. So they asked me to go out and go to the Supreme Court. I lived in in, uh, Virginia. Go to the Supreme Court, try to get on television, all these things. And before long, I was invited to meetings with pro-life leadership, and I was being asked to be on a lot of different TV shows and radio shows and networks and all kinds of things. If you look on YouTube, um, a lot of these have been posted. So you'll see me when my, in my 90s, you know, red dress <laughs> with the elbows, the uh, with the shoulders out to the side and uh, my short hair, which is like a big puff, a dandelion puff of hair. So hearing your background and kind of your how your thinking changed so drastically on those topics. I want to kind of switch from the pro-life movement to how you have believed that the sexual revolution has transformed the relationships. The You Were Made For More podcast is all about relationships. That's what we kind of eat, breathe, and sleep and what we're passionate about educating people on. So I'm curious, how do you believe that the sexual revolution has transformed the relationships between men and women today? Obviously, it's transformed it for the worst. Um, I I heard somebody say once, and and I know it sounds sexist, but... um, that women give sex in order to get love, and men give love in order to get sex. So the goals are somewhat different. I don't know how true that is. I think men also seek love. In my experience, they they do, and their, their hearts can be very wounded by it. But I do think that for many men, the sex drive is more insistent than it is for many women. I read somewhere that men think about sex every, is it every 15 seconds? It was just, 
<laughs> it was something ridiculous like that. And I thought, boy, no wonder there's a gap and we just don't understand each other. I'm afraid that the sexual revolution was partly marketed to us as a way of expressing your freedom. This is the American theme, is liberation and freedom. And that they should um, just follow your desires and do whatever your desires are. And that includes eating and drinking and anything you want to do, and especially sex, because that's just so enjoyable. And I think it is a it is a kind of sexual life style that Im- immediately appeals more to men than to women. But women have to cooperate with it. It's begun the thing women have to do in order to get love. And often they don't get love because men are just having sex with them, but they're not ready to commit to them. So I think that overall the sexual revolution, I think this is obvious, that it's been it's been bad for women. It's been a great loss for women. It's been bad for men because their desire to love and to serve and to bond has been blighted, and they're being told all they want is sex. And it's probably worse for children because we know the immense, immense advantages that a child has when it grows up with its biological mother and father or adoptive mother and father. A child who is brought up it, by, by parents like that, they just do so much better in every phase. Um, so I think that it has damaged the relationship between men and women and damaged the life experience of men and women and children in many ways. Yeah, I definitely am in agreement with you about that. Um, it's a generational shift that has happened and it's affecting not only men and women, but children as well. And I think that's why we're in the place that we are in, in society today. Um, Modern day feminism is very, very different than feminism that was back in the 60s and the 70s. So can you talk a little bit about the movement and lies that women believe when it comes to supporting feminism? Because I think that's a really important topic that we should hit on. I haven't kept up with the changes in modern-day feminism any more than the average citizen does. You know, I see the news, you know, read the newspaper sometimes, and um, it seems to me that a very destructive thing, which was a desire to see yourself as a victim, um, that that has persisted and become even deeper. And it's a very negative thing because it denies you agency. It makes you think you have no control over your life. Somebody else controls your life, and you have no hope and no power, and so you just languish. So I think that the 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 victim mode is is a very dangerous one for um, for anyone who adopts it. It has an inherent problem. You have to be able to make advances in life and strong enough to change your life, or you're without any kind of a hope. So I do think that uh, the victim mentality has been um, a, a great, a great loss to women overall. Yeah, and I think that even something that we have seen come out of the sexual revolution and the lies that modern day feminism kind of pushes is that the sexual revolution um has pushed the abortion agenda in our society. It's made abortion seem 
like something that's empowering and good and, you know, your body, your choice, um, is a, it, it seems like a desirable thing. I grew up believing that. So how has fem- feminism played a role in how our, how our country views abortion? Because how we view it is very different than how other countries view it. Um, that's a that's a really sad uh, kind of a question because, of course, it has. Of course, the sexual revolution has driven forward the need for abortion. It just looks like a need at this point. And the reason is women having sex with men that are not committed to them. And they even use various kinds of uh, sexual or pregnancy prevention devices and uh, medications. And even still, there's still some pregnancies sometimes. And so these pregnancies are seen as if they're unfair, you know, as if it's just this bad luck thing happened to you and you have the right to be free from it. I wrote a book many years ago called Real Choices, listening to women, looking for alternatives to abortion. And in this book, I surveyed all the pregnancy care centers I could reach across America. I sent a survey and just asked them, what is it that women ask you for the most? What do women need when they come in your center? And I also went around the country and I interviewed post-abortion women. And I asked them pretty much the same question. I said, what did you need before your abortion that would have enabled you to continue the pregnancy? Was there anything anyone could have done to help you? And they talked to me about what that phase was, that short, sometimes short period between discovering the pregnancy and having the abortion, and what kind of intervention could have come right into that moment there. And most of them, it wasn't a matter of, uh, I don't have money, I'll lose my housing, I don't have a doctor. It wasn't anything like that. One of the women even said to me, I knew where those resources were. I knew where the pregnancy care center was. I could have gotten all that. The overwhelming reason, they told me, that they wanted abortions was because of a person in their life who was telling them to have the abortion. It was actually about a relationship. When women get pregnant, often they have this sense of of becoming enmeshed in the whole network of life. It's a very communal sense. And women who feel abandoned, who feel like everybody in their life is, is pushing them away or conditionally embracing them if they have the abortion. And I do remember one woman said to me, she was a college student, she said, everybody was telling me they would be there for me if I had the abortion, but nobody said they would be there for me if I wanted to raise the baby. So over and over, what I heard from these post-abortion women was, I need somebody to stand by me. I need just that one person who could give me that moral support. I would have had this baby if, if anyone had encouraged me. They said that over and over again. And so that is something that pregnancy care centers can do. That is the, the one thing, you know, that women were asking for is what these centers do, that if they have nothing material to give away, if they're at the end of their resources, but they still have staff and volunteers 
that can meet with a woman who's in distress and afraid and talk to her and give her encouragement and walk with her through this process. That is the most powerful thing that American anti-abortion people do to end abortion. It, it may be years before we see a legal end to abortion or a life amendment. It, politics are so unpredictable, we don't know when that might happen. But we can save the lives of unborn babies today by volunteering at your local pregnancy care center. So that's the thought I would, I would leave you with, um, is to, if you're listening to this, if you're not a pregnancy center volunteer, then figure out where the center is that's closest to your house. Um, go in and look around and see what you think of it and consider becoming a volunteer. And if you're not able to do that, please contribute to this pregnancy center. They're trying to save the lives of babies right there in your community. And this happens so this abortion thing happens so quietly that you don't know anything about it. You don't know that it's going on around you every day. It is the pregnancy care centers that are putting an end to abortion more than anything else pro-lifers can do. So I would urge you to uh, volunteer, contribute, give them money, give them boxes of diapers, give them maternity clothes, all the things that might encourage that woman to make it through her pregnancy so that others may live, right? That's what we're all about. Amen. Yeah, I think that is a great place to wrap up this conversation with you, Frederica. Thank you for being on the podcast and um, just encouraging our listeners to get involved in their communities and to do what they can where they've been placed. I think that's something that's so important that a lot of the times we think our best yes for God has to be this like big grandiose gesture and that's not always true. It can look like little faithful things in our community and every day that really makes a difference in people's lives and single moms and women who are facing unplanned pregnancies, those are, that's a group of people that we want to serve. So thank you for speaking to that. Thank you, Sammy, for having me on the show.